Amen. Hey, I want you at Battle Creek this morning to help me say to DePage, congratulations today, grand opening today in Chicago at the campus at DePage. We're so excited about what the Lord is doing there. I was there a couple of days this week, and uh, on those days we did a vision night for the volunteers on Wednesday night, amazing night. And, and then on Thursday, I went to the College of DuPage, uh, which is a secular university, and taught on Jesus Hates Religion for a couple of hours, uh, which I was very intimidated by that assignment, actually. I said, I don't think I could talk for a couple of hours. They said, you'll have no trouble. And, and, uh, but we took questions, and we fielded the debate, and we, we loved on kids. And uh, we gave books away to those who would join us in a book club. And, uh, and so we had 17 college students agree to be in what we call community groups, what they call a book club. And uh, so they're going to talk about the book in, in groups for four or five weeks. And uh, so we rejoice in uh, what the Lord is doing there today at Midtown. We welcome you. And at Downtown, we're so excited uh, about what the Lord is doing uh, across our, our city and even in other parts of the nation. And today, we're talking about the cross. The cross is the center of our message. If you're new to church, if you're new to Christianity, or you've just popped in today, I want you to understand uh, that what you have heard about the cross being the center of Christianity is a true statement. And it is the center of our, our entire message. It is the big idea of the entire Bible. And everything in the Old Testament was pointing forward to the cross of Jesus Christ, and everything in the New Testament was pointing back to that one moment at Golgotha, where Jesus Christ gave his life. And really, you can't have Christianity without the story of the cross. But all of history hinges on this one point in time, this one moment in history. And the heart, listen, the heart of every human being aches inside because of sin and because of separation that we feel from our maker. But it is through the cross that we can overcome that separation and we can over, overcome that heartache. And it's through the cross that our past and our future, they intersect with one another. Whether we can either bow at the cross and turn to God and walk in Him and receive a changed life, or we can bow to ourselves and turn away from God and live our lives independent of Him. It is our choice, but either way, no one can ignore the cross. We all have to decide what we're going to do with the cross, what we think about the cross, what we believe about the cross, what we will do uh, with the cross. But really, what is it that happened on that day? What was this a Jewish religion getting rid of someone who was getting in the way, getting rid of someone that they didn't like, getting rid of someone who was disrupting uh, their religion? Or was it just the Romans and them getting rid of someone who could be a problem, dismissing a problem, them getting rid of someone who could stir up some sort of coup or some sort of revolution? Is the cross, is it just about a man dying or is it more than that? Is it bigger than that? And to understand the cross, listen, you have to go all the way back to the beginning to Genesis 1, and you have to go look at what happened in those first few chapters of the Bible at what happened on another tree in the garden called Eden. And you have to understand what happened when Adam and Eve took a bite of that fruit and their actions in that garden set off a chain reaction into all of human history. And it was like a earthquake and the aftershocks are still being felt to this day all around the planet. And there are three things I want you to write down today. <clears throat> and the first one is this. 
as it relates to sin, sin cursed all of humanity. It cursed all of humanity. From, from the beginning to the end, it cursed humanity. Listen how the Apostle Paul puts this in Romans chapter 5, verse 12. When he says, Adam sin, sin entered the world. When Adam sinned, sin entered the world. What he's saying is that sin is like this slithering snake that is slithering into our lives, into our lives and into the lives of all people. And everyone who has ever lived, everyone who will ever live has been affected by sin. When Adam sinned, what he did is open the door and say, come on in. And that's what happened. And it changed the very fabric of our being. And we went from being this pure and spotless relationship with God to this altered state of reality that God never intended for his children to live in. And sin distorts everything. It distorts our view of ourselves. It distorts our view of others. It distorts our view of God. It distorts how we see everything. My kids get on my, my Mac uh, sometimes and they play with this thing called photo booth. How many of you have children that play with photo booth, right? And, and what photo booth is, it's a screen, a, a camera on your picture and, I mean, on your computer screen and they take a picture of themselves, then there is a myriad of things that they can do with that picture. And they can push any button and do all kinds of things. They can swirl it. They can spin it. They can make it fatter. They can make it skinnier, which, by the way, I read in USA Today a couple weeks ago. There's a new app that you can put on your phone that when you take a selfie, takes 10 pounds off of your face. <laughs> I, I sent an email to our staff said, I want that on our screens. But, but they, they distort these pictures. In fact, we took a couple of pictures of some of our staff members, and we'll play a little guessing game as to see if you can guess who they are. Okay, so let's look at the first picture. Anybody want to guess who that is? Yeah, it's Dean. In Midtown, you should have got that. That's your fearless leader at Midtown, Dean Johnson, who was swirled up like a smoothie. Next one, uh, Chicago, you should guess that one. Battle Creek, you probably don't know. Uh, that is Chris Wright our campus pastor in Chicago uh, who's launching that campus today. I think we have one more. <laughs> I don't know who that freak is with my wife. I think I'm better looking than him, actually, until I take my shirt off and then, and then he wins. But I do use deodorant. But do you understand what I'm saying? Listen. It distorts, and sin distorts things. And maybe that was Meredith's sin that distorted that picture. But God, listen, he was not happy about the distortion that happened. Why? Because when sin came in, it changed everything. Listen, no longer could Adam and Eve talk face to face with God. There was something that had entered there. There was something in the middle of them. There was something that was separating that intimacy with God, and it was sin. But it wasn't just sin. It was also guilt, and it was shame that sin allowed in, and sin ushered in, and it drove this wedge between God and his creation, between a heavenly father and his children that he loves, and God hates sin, pure and simple. And it is so easy for me to say that, and it's easy for me to just utter out those words that God hates sin. But there are some people who don't like that phrase, that God hates sin. Back when, several years ago in 2009, when I came up with the idea of the first time to, to, for my title of my book, Jesus Hates Religion, we got all kinds of flack over that title. And listen, the flack didn't come because people love religion. I haven't met those people. The flack came because people don't like the word hate. 
And they don't want the word hate next to the word Jesus or the name Jesus. And they want to say to me, hey, pastor, God is love. Says so in the Bible. God is love. So he can't hate. Listen, you haven't read the Bible if you don't understand that God hates. There are things that God hates. You say, well, what does God hate? Proverbs chapter 6 tells us that there are six things the Lord hates. No, seven that he detests. Another place in Scripture says God hates divorce. Why? Because of what it does to his children and the harm that it brings to his kids. Listen, there are plenty of places in Scripture that insinuate or, or, or lead us to the fact that God hates. But you want, you want to know what God really hates? God really, really, really hates sin. He hates it. Why does God hate sin? Because, again, of what it does to his kids. God hates sin because of the separation that it creates between him and his children. Back to Romans chapter 5, what did Paul say in verse 12? He said, Adam sinned and sin entered the world, and he brought death to everyone. Why? Because everyone sinned. That's what he says there. Everyone sinned. It's not that sin, you know, somehow entered this world and, oh, well, I guess we're, we're all sinners now. Let's live with it. We're all sinners. No, 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 no. You play a role in that. And so do I. We all play a role in that because we are all guilty. Why? Because we all sin. And we can knock on Adam and Eve, and we, we can get mad at them for allowing sin to enter the world, but the truth of the matter is, is that all of us have willfully chosen to sin and to disobey God. But sin changed the human condition. It doesn't stop there. The second thing that I want you to see is that sin complicates our relationship with God. It complicates our relationship with God. It changes how we relate to God. It changes our intimacy with God. It, it affects how we relate to him, and it stunts our growth in him. It chokes off every opportunity we have for intimacy with God because it creates this barrier and this big wall between us and God. And we're not guilty because of Adam. We're guilty because of our own sin. And the fact that we have sinned, we keep doing this stuff willingly that, dis, that disobeys God and that God hates. And, and we're arrogant enough to think that it won't affect us. We're arrogant enough to think that our sin just affects us. I can't tell you how many times I've sat across my desk from a man in our church and he's looked at me and said, well, pastor, this is my sin. It's my private sin. It doesn't affect anybody else. No, sir, you're wrong. That sin is attached to a train car that's attached to a train car that's attached to a train car that's that affects your children and your children's children and your children's children's children. It does not just affect you. And we think that since sin is a, just a part of the human condition that we should just accept it and we should just tolerate it and we should just be okay with it and we should just say that's the way that it is. But let me ask you this question. What did God think about that sin? And what did God do about that sin? And before we can answer the question what did God do about our sin, we have to understand God's relationship to sin. We've already made it clear that God hates sin, but the Bible goes much further than that and says that he can't even stand the sight of sin. He can't be in the same place as sin. Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 13. Listen to a couple of the Old Testament prophets. Listen to what Habakkuk says in chapter 1, verse uh, 13. God is pure and cannot stand the sight of evil. So if we sin and we have sin in our lives, what, what, what does that say for those who are in sin? Listen to what the prophet Isaiah says in chapter 59, verse 2. It's your sins that have cut you off from God. Because of your sins, God has turned away. Listen, that sounds awful. 
that God Almighty has turned away from us, that, that, that the prophets, what these Old Testament prophets are doing is painting the picture. And they're trying to tell this story. And the story they're trying to tell is that God is so pure and he is so holy that he cannot stand the sight of sin. And because we are sinful and because we have sin, he can't bear to look at us. That's the picture these prophets are painting. And again, it's a picture and it's a story. And the story says that that sin is so horrible and sin is so terrible and sin is so gross that God can't look at it anymore. And he had to do something about that. He, ha- he was forced to do something about that. So what did he do? Let, let me give you a good theological explanation of what God did on, on the cross. God took the sin that he hates so much and he placed it on his son that he loves so much to rescue his children that he made. And let me just say that one more time, and I want you to hear it, that God took all of that sin that he hates, and he put it on the son that he loves to rescue the people that he made. That's what God did at the cross. And here's the third thing that I want you to see, and I want you to know today about sin, is that sin was carried away by Jesus on the cross. Amen. It was carried away. Listen, God couldn't bear to see it anymore. God couldn't look at it anymore. He couldn't stand to see how sin was destroying his children, how sin was destroying our lives and was destroying the intimacy that we, we had with him. So he did the most drastic thing that he could think of doing in, in that moment. He killed sin. But to kill sin, there needed to be a sacrifice. And there was only one person who could be that sacrifice. And his name is Jesus. The law says that sin was cursed and a sacrifice was required. Look at Galatians chapter 3, verse 13 on the screen, if you would. It says, but Christ has rescued us from the curse pronounced by the law. Christ has rescued us from the curse that was pronounced by the law. How did he do that? When he hung on the cross. Listen, he took upon himself the curse for our wrongdoing, your wrongdoing and my wrongdoing. He took that curse. And so God took all of our sin and he placed it upon Jesus Christ so that he could bear the curse for you and he could bear the curse for me. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 God made Christ who never sinned to be the offering for our sin. That's what God did for you and for me. He made Jesus who had never sinned to be the offering for our sins. Literally what that says is that it made him to be sin. There's no app involved in that. And there's no photo booth involved. He didn't twist this thing and somehow make him like sin or make him look like sin. He made him sin. There's no smoke. There's no mirrors. There's none of that. He literally made him sin. And Jesus took sin upon himself so that you could be made right with God. So that I could be made right with God. And God couldn't stand to look at our sin anymore. He couldn't bear watching it anymore. So he put all of the sin onto the shoulders of his son, Jesus Christ. And then he led his son to a cross so that sin could finally be killed. But the sin that Jesus bore, God couldn't look at it. He couldn't even look at it. History tells us that on that day, and the Bible tells us that on that day, that the sun grew dark and that the clouds covered up the sky 
and that God had to turn his back on his one and only son. The end of Matthew, one of the final chapters of Matthew, this is a verse we've been working on in the car on the way to school in Matthew chapter 27, verse 45 and verse 46. And here's what it says, at noon, darkness fell across the whole land until about three o'clock. And at three o'clock, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, Shema Sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you abandoned me? And in that moment, Jesus, who had never known the displeasure of the Father, who had never known anything but intimacy with the Father, understood and identified with every sinner who has ever lived and identified with the separation that sin creates in our lives. And the weight of sin was so great on him that even Jesus could barely hold it. And he took the punishment and he took all of the pain and he took all of the shame and all of the guilt and he took all of it, even though it was ours to take, and he took it to rescue us. He took it so that we would not have to die in sin. Let, let me read you, if you got your Bible, turn to Isaiah 53. And I want to read you a, a couple of verses out of Isaiah chapter 53. And I want you to see the pain and the shame and the punishment that we so deserved. But he took the pain and the shame and the punishment for us. Verse 4, Isaiah 53. Yet it was our weaknesses he carried away. Our weaknesses he carried away. It was our sorrows that weighed him down. You know, in John 19, it tells us that when Pilate asked the crowd, what should I do with Jesus? And they shouted, crucify him, kill him, right? That he turned Jesus over. And the soldiers laid that heavy cross on his shoulders and they made him carry it all the way through that Via Della Rosa that leads out of the gate to Golgotha, the place of the skull. Look at verse 4 again. And we thought his troubles were a punishment from God, a punishment for his own sins. But he was innocent. He was sinless. He was guiltless. It was our sin he was bearing on the cross. Look at verse 5. But he was pierced for our rebellion. He was crushed for our sin. He was beaten so that we could be whole. He was whipped so that we could be healed. Matthew 27 tells us how this took place. It tells us that they took him and they laid him in a torture chamber. And that soldier called a lictor took that weapon called a cat of nine tails with nine strips of leather. And at the end, uh, conglomerations made of rock and bone and and glass and shards of broken pottery. And, And those weapons were slapped onto his back. And as they grabbed flesh, they would pull away, tearing the flesh off the back of Jesus, tearing the tendons out of his backside. And they took that crown and they put it on his head. And next week, I'm going to talk about this in great detail. And we're going to walk through exactly what happened on that cross for your sin and my sin. But they put that crown on his head and the briars were digging into his brow and the blood trickled down his face into his beard. And when he reached Golgotha, they nailed him to the cross with three nine-inch nails, one in each hand and one in his feet. And John 19 tells us that when he breathe his last that a soldier took a spear and shoved it under his ribcage and pierced his heart so that blood and water flowed out why did he do that why, why would he undergo such a punishment what, what type of punishment was that for what, why would he allow that to happen to himself 
Go back to Isaiah 53. Look at verse 6. All of us, like sheep, have strayed away. We left God's past to follow our own past. Yet God placed all of our sin and all of our iniquity upon the Lord. That's what was playing out there. That the Lord laid on him the sins of us all. And that sin was so heavy and that sin was so torturous that it was laid on Jesus' shoulders that he cried out, my God, why have you abandoned me? But God hadn't abandoned Jesus. And God hadn't run from his own son. God hadn't abandoned us. And God didn't turn away from us. Listen, what does that scripture say? We turned away from him. We, we left his past to go follow our own past. We were the ones that strayed, and we were the ones that scattered, and we were the ones that ran from him. We left his path. God didn't leave the path. We left the path. And, and that's what the Bible is saying. And we say that God turned away from us, but that's not really true. It was us who turned away from God. Go back to verse 3, Isaiah 53, and it tells us about Jesus, and it says that he was despised. It tells us he was rejected. It says he was a man of sorrows. He was acquainted with the deepest grief. And we turned our backs on him, and we looked the other way. He was despised, and we did not care. He was rejected by us. And he took that on. We couldn't bear the guilt and the shame of sin, so we turned away from God. And God couldn't bear to look at our sin anymore. And he turned not from us. He turned to us. Listen, what was happening there theologically was that in that moment, a guilty man, uh, an innocent man arrived there, but a guilty man died there. Why? Because he became sin. And in that moment, when it all seemed to be so dark, listen, God was turning to us. He was turning to us. God sent a rescue party on that day, not to his son, but to all of his children, those who would come to know him as Lord and Savior. And sin separates us from God, and it opens up a chasm between the divine and the human. It does that in our lives, but how? So what, what does God say then? Does God say, well, you sinned too bad, sorry. You can't get to me. You can never get to me. No. God's still pursuing us. But when we allow sin, what we allow in, we allow with it is guilt. And we allow shame to come in. And when guilt and shame come into our lives, we turn from him. Get asked all the time, Pastor, what if I do that? What if, what if I believe in Jesus? What if I trust Christ? And what if I, what if I get saved and I, and I receive his forgiveness and then, and then I sin again? What if that happens? I'm afraid to do that because I'm afraid I'm going to sin again. But do I have to start over again? Do I have to be saved again? Do I have to hit reset again? Is it a hard reset this time? Listen to me. When you receive Christ into your life, when you cross that faith line and you ask him to forgive you for your sin, he is forgiving all of your sin. What do you mean all? Here's what I mean. All. Past, present, and future. 
and every sin you have ever committed or every sin you will ever commit become under the blood of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. But when you sin as a Christian, you do feel, certainly you do feel guilt and shame because we have opened the door to guilt and shame. And guilt and shame come in and they cause us to pull away from God and we turn in shame and we try to hide from God in those moments. And when we pull away from God, what's happening is that we are opening ourselves up to the enemy. Listen, we are unintentionally opening the door of attack from the enemy into our lives. But God is not the one hiding. He is out in the light waiting for you and me. John wrote in his in his letter, 1 John, he wrote, but if you sin, you have an advocate in the heavens who will hear you. By the way, 1 John written to believers and believers only. And he's saying, when you sin, you have an advocate in the heavens who is there for you. He wrote that to Christians, people who were following Jesus Christ. And he knew we couldn't live a perfect life. Only Jesus could live the perfect life. But when we mess up and we, we turn Away from Jesus, all we have to do is turn back to him. Why? Because God hasn't left. He's still there. For some of you, you have all these hang-ups and these habits and these hurts and sins in your life, and you keep doing them over and over and over again, and you keep letting those things rob you and steal from you and rob you from the freedom that is yours in Christ Jesus. And you're not living the overcoming life in Christ because you keep on sinning. And each time you sin, the Holy Spirit calls out to you. Come back, come back. But when you sin again and you sin again and you stop listening, the voice gets quieter and quieter and quieter. To the tune, to the degree that we might not even be able to hear it or to discern it. Listen, James tells us again, James is to believers, only to believers. And in James chapter 4, he says we're to cry over our sin and we're to shed tears over them and we're to sob over them. We're, we're to rem, live in remorse because of sin. Listen, James tells us that. And the sin that was laid heavy upon the shoulders of Jesus Christ, that same sin that was placed on his shoulders, that we should have the same reaction to it that God had to it. We, we should hate it. When we, when we let that in our lives, we shouldn't, and we should hate sin and hate what it does to our lives. God hated it with the same passion that God hated it. We should hate it. And today, maybe you're here and you've never received God's gift of free grace and God's gift of amazing grace. And you say, yeah, I'm, I've sinned. Of course, I, I've let sin into my life and I try to cover it up at times, and I try to ignore it at times. And you say, yeah, I, I feel like I can't control it, so why bother with that? I, after all, I'm just human. And you say, I will never, ever, ever be able to master this. I will never, ever, ever be able to overcome that. I don't know how to. Well, well today, I, I want you to know that there is a man who came to rescue you. And he was sent by God, and he was God. And, and here are three truths from Scripture God made us, God loves us, and God came to rescue us. And next week is Easter, and we're going to learn what that rescue looked like and what that rescue is all about. And we're going to see what really transpired there on the cross and, and before and after the cross of Jesus. But, but it wasn't the beginning of a brand new religion. And this was not a tr new truth teacher came to town. And this was not just another prophet. Listen, this was the beginning of a new covenant, and it was the beginning of a new relationship with God. 
And religion was killed on that cross, but relationship rolled out of that tomb. And come back next week as we look at this and we walk through this one step at a time. But today, I don't want to leave you without a chance to respond. And today, I've laid out for you what sin does in the lives of all people and what sin does in the lives of, of all of the children of God. And I've laid out before you what God did about it. And God's restoration plan. And I've shown you that Jesus had to suffer. And I've shown you why Jesus had to die. And I've shown you why he died for sins that he did not commit. And he did it all for you. And he did it all for me. And today I want to invite you to accept this free grace. An amazing grace of God's gift. And I want you to really be invited to start living today in a new way. Free from sin and guilt, and shame, the punishment, and free to live tomorrow like you never have before. So on all of our campuses today, I want to invite you to bow your head and close your eyes. If you're watching online, I want to invite you to pray with me at this moment. And if today you want to trust Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, you want to give your life to him, Surrender your will to him. Exchange all of who you are for all that he has to offer you. Would you just pray with me on every campus right where you're seated? Would you just say, dear God, I know I'm a sinner, but today I ask you to forgive me for all of my sin. Jesus, would you come into my life to be my Lord? Come in as my Savior and my forgiver. In the best way that I know how, I turn my back on my sin and I trust you alone to save me. And, and I want you to lead my life. You call the shots in my life as my Savior, my forgiver, and my Lord. I receive the gift of salvation and I receive you, Jesus, in the best way that I understand it. And if you just prayed that prayer for the first time in your life, you meant business, we say congratulations to you today. I also want to lead you as believers in a confession this morning, a prayer of confession. You know, the word confession comes from a couple of Greek words, homo, lagos. Homo means same, and lagos means words. When we confess sin, what we're doing is we're using the same words that God is using. And we're not distorting it. We're not trying to avoid it or hide it. We're calling it sin. And we're confessing it. We're saying the same thing about it that God says about it. And we're turning our back on it. You know, one of the greatest tactics the enemy uses in the life of a believer is unconfessed sin. The enemy uses that unconfessed sin to gain ground, to trap us, and cause us to live in an identity that is not ours. To live in an identity that is not for the children of God. And you know what happens when we do that? It affects everything in our life, and especially our testimony. It affects what we say and what we believe about Jesus and how we communicate Jesus to the world. It renders us ineffective and void to the point of being of no eternal use in other people's lives. But when we confess our sin and when we reclaim the ground, we disarm the enemy and we disarm our accuser. Listen to these two verses in Revelation chapter 12. Verse 10 says, for the accuser of the brothers and the sisters 
has been thrown down to the earth and the one who accuses them before our God day and night. That's what he's doing, is accusing the children of God, the brothers and the sisters day and night. He's accusing us. And unconfessed sin gives him the ground to stand on. But listen to verse 11. And they have defeated him. How? By the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. By the blood of the Lamb. Listen, and the word of our testimony and our confession. Listen, it takes away the power of the accuser. And it frees us up so that we can use the two bullets that are in the chamber. The blood of the Lamb that covers us and covers our sin. And our testimony of what he has done in our lives. And the freedom that he has brought into our lives. And when we do that, when we use our testimony, it draws men and women and boys and girls unto God. So we need to be used this week in the kingdom of God, to invest in people's lives and to invite others, maybe this week more than most weeks in the year, because it's Easter week. And so I want to lead you in a confession as the children of God. And on every campus, I want you to say this out loud. And I want you to declare this out loud as a child of God. Would you just say, I am a child of God. I'm washed in the blood of the Lamb. I am who he says I am. I have what he says I have. I'm free. I'm forgiven. I'm a child of God. I can walk in the freedom that is mine. I'll walk under the blood. I'll use my testimony. I will be used to share the love of God with all around me. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen and amen. Would you thank the Lord for the truth today and who we are? We rejoice.